0: Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure, as always, to welcome co-host to What's Making News, Russell Hanby. How are you, Russell?
1: I'm well, thanks, Henry. And uh, you're well too, are you, today? Hey, I'm well
0: today. Uh, the weather's looking reasonably good. We've had fair weather for a while now. It hasn't been, it's not been been—it's been cold on and off and a bit of rain, but the weather it's, tends to stabilise uh, once we hit autumn, doesn't it?
1: It does, yes. You get some cooler days and then you get the odd mild days. Uh, I think the the weekend's going to be mid-20s again, so I think it's pretty good, really.
0: Yeah, all pretty good. We've got some good uh, topics for this week, some great uh, research uh, achievements by Australian researchers and... uh, A very interesting odd spot, I must say. Uh, We'll save that one up to last, but uh, I think it's a good one. Um, We'll start with the age, Russell. Classrooms with no teachers or students in state ghost schools. Elmhurst Primary School in Victoria's West had just celebrated its 150th birthday when the school council decided to strip it of staff. What happened there, Russ?
1: Well, at the Elmhurst Primary School it was closed because enrolments had dwindled to two. Now, Elmhurst Primary School is one of Victoria's 10 ghost schools. They're not officially shut but have no teachers assigned. And apparently school councils can vote whether to close or what they call de-staffed schools if they have low enrolments. Now, de-staffed schools could reopen if enrolments emerge, but this is reasonably rare, apparently. Now, schools are officially closed if, the de- st- if they've been de-staffed for some years, and uh, sometimes the land is sold, rezoned or merged, and uh, dozens of former sites have, have done that. Now, there are four former schools sold for $13.9 million in the last few months, and uh, Rosewell Primary School in Carayo and Yarra Hill Secondary College, they each... Uh, scored over six million dollars when they were sold off and there's a school near banala called devonish primary Mm. that was now that's got actually five prospective students but has been de-staffed and uh, all the locals and the parents are up in arms about that but uh, the education department uh, education department is advertising for two teachers presumably they haven't had much luck yet and uh you know in victoria over 20 schools do have 10 or fewer students so Apparently, there's no set number now to close the school, but as it gets low, it obviously becomes unfeasible to, to, to keep going, particularly if they haven't had teacher allocate, a, allocated.
0: Yeah, look, it's an interesting one, Russ, and uh, mostly when schools close, the the locals say, you know, um, they're generally, generally opposed to it for the reasons that they outline, particularly little country schools. You lose the families, the shop shuts, the pub shuts, and you're just a ghost town. Some of them, to some extent, are already ghost towns. Uh, This just makes them more of a ghost town. But, of course, the interesting thing, Russell, is uh, when I started way back in the 70s, we went as headmasters of, or principals, of one teacher schools. I had 14 kids up at Nirim North uh, these days, and I think it came as a result of um, OHS issues and a couple of kidnappings from Faraday and another school, that uh, you've got to have two staff members on site, which I think is a, a good thing. Yeah, look, when you get to two or three kids, it's um, you wonder about the viability. Uh, in primary schools, obviously, with a general curriculum, You can uh, get away with small numbers in terms of curriculum. Of course, the secondary schools, once they drop below a certain level, Russell, as you would know, having been a secondary teacher, your career choices change uh, dramatically and not for the better. So it's interesting. Interestingly, Russ, while we're here, two schools I've taught at, one I was the headmaster of or principal, that was Niram North, my first school, a little school of uh, 14 children, uh, prep to Six in uh, West Gippsland, north of Niram South, beautiful country up there. The other one was my other principalship, so I'm, I guess you've got to wonder about Henry Groszak, uh, Principal of uh, Eastern Road, South Melbourne. Um, I was there back in uh, the uh, middle 80s, and uh, we had 110 kids when I was there. A very famous school, Edmund Barton. Uh, and Charles Alm had been students there. And also um, the uh, famous uh, Lindsay Gaze children um, went to that school. The, uh, the basketballers, Andrew Gaze and his sister. So, so quite a notable school. And stay. It closed a few years after I left. And a school I taught at in the early 80s, Doveton West. That's closed, so let's hope, uh, let's hope uh, Berwick Lodge Primary School, which is doing very well, I was the founding printer, stays open, uh, we, we should be, we're on 610 children at the moment and pretty stable, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, have you, have you taught at a school that's since closed? Uh, no, although I, I taught at a small school um, in
1: Hawksdale, I think we talked about this one other time near mm-hmm. Wardenville. It had a, in it was the high school only when I was there in the early 80s and there were 164 students, very small for a secondary school and uh, in fact in the physics class and there were only four students uh, at that year 12 level. They, it is hard to, for those small schools to offer large choices for their senior kids mm. of course. But now, I think for the numbers, though, they've combined with the primary school, and it's now a P12 it has been for many years.
0: Mm, mm, Yeah, those sort of things happen. It's fascinating. Yeah, look, it's always sad and nostalgic when a school closes, and sometimes it does have a disruptive effect. But um, the numbers do, at the end of the long day, dictate, don't they, Russell?
1: They do. And, of course, with the small primary schools in the country, when they get to secondary school, they've often got to travel fairly long distances in buses, don't they, to the the nearest big high school.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, what's this about um, air-powered phones? Tell us a bit about that one.
1: Yeah, well, this is news of the day. There's a bit of a – you listen up and sit up, bolt upright – uh, Melbourne scientists have made a world-first discovery of how to turn air into electricity. Now, this has been covered in both the papers, the Age and the Herald Sun. Correct. But, uh, but uh, it means that uh, the mobile phones, smartwatches and exercise monitors, uh, perhaps hearing aids, would never have to be charged up. Uh, Dr. Reese Grinter of Monash University, who led the team, said his team had discovered a bacterial enzyme called HUC, I suppose, H-U-C, Um, which, when in contact with hydrogen in the air, makes an electric current. Now, they've known for years that bacteria do use hydrogen in the air for their own energy to grow and survive, but they've successfully able to uh, harness this, and it worked well in an electric circuit. In other words, I suppose they had an electric circuit and it could power a little torch globe or something, and they reckon it can power small electrical appliances. Uh, so they're using the um, hydrogen in the air to combine with this enzyme, this bacterial enzyme. And, of course, it could eventually be an alternative to solar-powered devices. And uh, because it's a good sustainable source of the enzyme, it's uh, there's no limit to perhaps how it could go in the future. In fact, they hope the technology will be further advanced within five to ten years. So I can't charge your television or your lights or your microwave yet, but it could be on the way, couldn't it?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now you've done math, science. Um, how do you make sense of that uh, action that uh, this bacterial enzyme called Huck uh, works? Uh, well, apparently,
1: yeah, I don't know the actual mechanism, all, except that it sounds like there is an energy source. They've known about it, and and they're able to sort of. It's a bit like when you when you're at school, uh, you could make electric current from a lemon. A lemon with two bits yes. of metal, and you get a charge across the. Uh, the terminals there so it's probably something like that they know it's another source of energy
0: that's amazing and um if it can be harnessed and developed uh, it would be quite an amazing thing if they could apply that on a much 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 larger scale russell
1: yes indeed when, when when i first heard it on the on the news i thought oh it's a big source of energy but of course they've got to uh, work on it. i think to increase the size of it don't they you yeah know, they do get out
0: they start with it sort of a template, don't they? They've, they, it's the principle of how it's done rather than the quantity it, to start with, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And so I suppose it's like all things, like electric currents have been known for years to be generated by things other than commercial batteries, haven't they? You know, uh, remember the things like the Van de Graaff generator, I think it was called at the school. Remember that experiment where you get the kids to hold hands and. Yes. They get a little shock going across them. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we've had static electricity yes. with animal. I don't know that that's strong enough to, it can open the uh, the arms of a, well, a little scientific device, but I don't know how, how strong the current is.
0: It's interesting that the research in that field hasn't uh, really taken as hold, or maybe it's very difficult, because we've known those things for a long, long time, and uh, it's interesting that only now, probably by accident, they've discovered <laughs> uh, that this enzyme does it, and it might actually, particularly when we're looking for alternative sources of Clean energy that uh, it's being developed by these little enzymes. It's quite an amazing, an amazing yeah. occurrence.
1: And apparently there's heaps of them, and it's a sustainable source there. And the, in the air, the hydrogen can easily be these days. Harmless too, so uh, it
0: could be a, the way to go, couldn't it? Could absolutely be. We need to take a short break, Russell. Can you can you hold the line as always?
1: Yes, certainly.
0: Welcome back to uh, Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grusick, a of this week's edition of What's Making News with co-host Russell Hanby. Welcome back, Russ. Thanks, Henry. How are now, you in the break? I'm
1: well, thanks, yes. I just had time to take my breath, and now we're ready to go again.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> we're certainly ready to go again. Better India ties. This is in the age, sought by degrees play on words here i think listeners as you will see uh australia will open the door to more indian students in a bid to expand a 4.2 billion education business and use the stronger trade links to support a growing security partnership
1: yes so uh, of course we know the prime minister's over in india at the moment i think he's there for three days or something even took in today's uh, or the cricket this week i believe uh and anyway but uh, the, the, what it is this uh There's a new agreement they're planning to make it easier for students to have their degrees recognised in each country, whether Australians over there or Indian people over here. That's part of a plan to increase the 130,000 students from India already studying in Australia. So by making their degrees more recognisable over in their home country, they think they'll encourage more students. It's the Australia-India Education Qualifications Recognition Mechanism wordy title, and that's Mm. to recognize degrees in both Australia and India, and uh, it will make it more accessible education, especially for Indian students over here. And uh, as I said, uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in India, where he announced the arrangements on a three-day visit, and other topics will be in commerce and uh, strategic talks as well. Other things, uh, it'll be a chance to accelerate a new trade agreement. Uh, it's a uh, it investment between the two countries, especially in the lithium mining industry for battery production. And there's also military exercises planned for called Malabar military ex- exercises. They'll take place in August between uh, India, US and uh, Japan off the West Australian coast. And so they're planning to organise that. So uh, there's lots of things he's doing in these three days.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, yes, it's, uh, as they say, um... There's about 130 students from India studying in Australia right now, according to University of Australia, the total having recovered to the level it reached before COVID-19. Deakin Uni on another note there, Russell. They're opening a campus in Gujarat to teach cyber security and business analytics. Uh, fascinating. And... Uh, I know before COVID, we had a lot of Indian students here. There were some issues though, wasn't there, with accommodation and uh, their safety and there was a bit of a a diplomatic row at one point or embarrassment. Do you remember that that time?
1: Yes. Yes, I mean, that was a few years ago now, but the last three or four years, wasn't it? Yes. And and they were being sort of victimised by some unruly people, weren't they, some of the students?
0: Yes, and Um, you'd like to think that uh, as we renew those... uh, relationships with them in in terms of tertiary education, that uh, they'll have nutted out all the things there that uh, may have caused some problems. But yes, look, it's an interesting one. India's a very important uh, Asian country in terms of geopolitical significance and uh, currently with all the tensions and, you know, um, manoeuvrings going on between the superpowers, uh, India's certainly a country of trade uh, e- uh, trade and uh, security importance to everybody
1: yes and of course the students uh, they do bring with them uh, uh, helps our economy a lot doesn't it the more students we have the, the I think in the billion dollar mark I think I read somewhere you know that, that what they contribute
0: yeah no look it's a uh, it's a significant uh, it's a significant uh, partnership that we have for many reasons and uh, great to see that it's uh, Appears to be back on kill. How did the cricket go that the Prime Minister went to watch this week? Have you heard anything? Uh,
1: no, I haven't. It's, uh, when we're doing this, uh, it's on this afternoon, I think, isn't it? Uh, That's
0: right. They've got a time. Is it starting or is it during the game? Obviously, I'm showing that I haven't been following I don't it.
1: know. I've been so busy preparing for this, Henry. I haven't had time to watch the cricket.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah, okay, I'll accept that one. We'll move on on that one. Uh, Another good one here, Russell, a bit of research here that might be of benefit to us all. Yes, fire-safe cladding from old glass. We've heard in Melbourne
1: and uh, England that where the cladding on some high-rise buildings is not helpful when they catch fire. In fact, it's uh, caused worse uh, fire. But uh, engineers at RMIT University, they've unearthed a method of using recycled glass to create fire-safe building cladding. And the researchers have worked with the materials technology company Live Field to create the product. It's made up of 83% recycled glass plus plastic binders and fire-retardant additives. And it's a, apparently a cheap, strong, and more importantly, fire-resistant. A research associate, Professor Dylan or Dylan Robert, said that the, the recovery glass also w- uh, would reduce landfill waste. Instead of going A lot of it going into the landfill uh, can be used in these claddings. And it's, uh, the main thing is it could prevent a spread of fire, especially in the high-rise buildings.
0: Mm, it's a good one. What, what people don't always realise is glass um, Russell is one of the most recyclable materials in the world, uh, simply because it doesn't lose its quality or purity, and it can be recycled for multiple uh, uses across a wide range of industries, uh, Uh, Professor Robert, Associate Professor Robert said that by using high amounts of recycled glass in building claddings while ensuring they meet fire safety and other standards, we're helping to find a solution to the very real waste challenge. That's a topic we've covered as well, has not it? Where the the recycling plants are overwhelmed with recycling material.
1: (laughs) Yes. I think I heard only recently that the supermarkets, by the end of the year, think they'll be able to Collect your soft plastics again. Uh, they had they put them on hold because, remember, they were just being warehoused and uh, caused all sorts of problems. But they reckon there's a way through, apparently, to take your rubbish again, your recycled soft plastic bags.
0: Really, they've, um, they've found a, a solution. Uh, humans can be quite ingenious when we put our minds to it or circumstances demanded, uh, Russell. <laughs> They can, yes. Often, if it's a problem, it's amazing how someone will come up with a sort of a
1: solution. Sometimes, very quickly, too. Yes,
0: yes, and of course, it's uh, it 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 speaks to um, uh, Darwinianism in a in a sort of a sense metaphorically, and that is survival of the fittest. If humans want to uh, survive and thrive, they've got to come up with new ways of um, working in the environment, making the most of it. uh, we've still got a bit of a problem there in that area with the uh, environment, aren't we? We've been trashing it for a bit too long in too many bad ways.
1: That's right. It's a it's a never-ending problem. That one, isn't it?
0: Yes, and that's another topic again. Now I've been waiting to get to this odd spot, Russ. I reckon it's a ripper.
1: Yeah, I've been reading. Really, I haven't read anything like this. So I don't think. you've No, I don't spots. think
0: you have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> researchers say lessons learned from studying how a tiny bug uses super propulsion to urinate that could spur technological breakthroughs the glassy winged sharpshooter uses an appendage called an anal stylus uh nicknamed the butt flicker to <laughs> catapult droplets of its pee you would make me read this wouldn't you yes Henry? absolutely and, and at Georgia Institute of Technology Scientists, who use high-speed videos and microscopes to examine the insect's unique peeing mechanism, <laughs> think their findings could help engineers figure out how to remove water from electronics or develop systems that can defog glasses.
0: So that's an interesting uh, one, isn't it? <laughs> yes, glassy-winged chap. If somebody said to you, Russell, before you read this, what is a glassy-winged sharpshooter? I'd probably say a bird. Yes, you'd think so. It's got a sort
1: of a, an avian sound, hasn't
0: it? It does. Um, but what a, what an amazing thing. And here's another thing of learning from the natural world. Uh, bugs do these things. Uh, but it's an interesting one. Um, they urinate... Super propulsion. <laughs> well, the mind boggles on that. But it's interesting how they reckon they can use that to remove water from electronics or develop systems that can defog glasses. Um, that's an yeah, interesting it, scientific connection there. Yeah, because they're
1: annoying problems. And sometimes the well, water getting into electronics uh, is bad news anyway, I would think. But it's a good way perhaps they can do it uh, easily and safely and... Uh, And also defogging glasses. I mean, during lockdown and and those people with spectacles who uh, had to wear masks or did wear masks, fogging was one of the worst things I think uh, I, I, I encountered, you know, on a cold day.
0: Yes, I found it. Especially, you know, I end up giving up on it, uh, reading in um, places where I was waiting to, you know, you had to wear the the mask and you'd be sitting down perhaps at your doctor's surgery or dental place and you're sitting there and you're waiting or even out at a restaurant and you've got to wear a mask and it's all fogged up and it's very hard not to get fogged up, I I would argue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard several tips. You put your glasses down at the tip of your nose and all these other things, but they don't, don't really work, do they, you know?
0: Not as well as you'd like them to work, Russell. Not as well as you'd like them to work. Well, that takes us out. It's amazing how quickly our 20 minutes goes. It does, too, yes. We no sooner seem to start than we're saying goodbye. Absolutely, but we packed a lot in there. Can I thank you once again? I do hope your weekend, have you unpacked everything yet or are you still packing and unpacking? (laughs) No, we're still in the business of uh, trying to sell the place. It'll take a while. (laughs) It will take a while, but patience. Uh, Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I think realistically, too. So, well, look, good luck with all that, Russ, and we'll catch you again in the same time next week. Yes, we'll look forward to it. As Russell Hanby, my co-host for this uh, time-honoured programme now, a segment in our programme called What's Making News. Enjoy your weekend, listeners.